Reading is taken from Revelation chapter 21. That's on page 1249 of the Pew Bibles. And it goes on from verse 1 to verse 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to meet in worship and in praise. We thank you that we can stand and sit down and consider eternity. We thank you that you do speak to us through your word, and we pray that you'll do that now, that you'll give us a real, a true, and a captivating vision of heaven. And we pray and ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, I hope you've all had a great Christmas and a great New Year. Hopefully you got those gifts that you were after. You gorged yourself on quality street, honey roast ham, stuffing turkey. Seconds, more turkey. That evening, more turkey. Next morning, more turkey. Hopefully the turkey's now gone. Or maybe you've had a difficult time. Not everyone has a great time at Christmas and New Year. Maybe illness got the better of you. Maybe it was a tough day for you and your family, and maybe you were on your own and you had to make do with very little. Tonight, however, we're all in the same boat because it's the beginning of January in England. This week, you're back to the usual, in the dark, wearing your dark scarf and your dark coat and your dark shoes and your dark trousers, facing the rain and the mud. And let's be honest, this time of year in this part of the world is utterly horrendous. <laughs> we all ache for some cold sunshine, never mind warm sunshine. 
And this is a time then when you need, as Scripture says, to set your heart on things above. It's a time when it's probably easier for you to set your heart on things above. So this is a good time to think about heaven and not to think about the mud and the rain. Now when I say the word heaven, what picture comes to mind? What's the first thing you think of? Random spurious pop songs, perhaps? Piles of chocolate? Probably not for a good while yet. Lots of white doves fluttering about. Images of Clive strumming a harp, lying back on a cloud, <laughs> bathed in glorious light. Sorry, that's probably not a picture you needed, right? No. <laughs> and while you're thinking about heaven, you might start to wonder what it will really be like, right? So will it be a land of eternal sunshine or will it rain? Will there be animals, in particular my animals, of course? Will I do nothing but sing hymns and songs all day, every day, for an eternity? And lots of other questions. But actually, there are only two questions about heaven that are really important, and they're both answered in the passage that we've got in front of us tonight. And they are, firstly, what is heaven? And secondly, who goes there? So that's... Those are the two questions that we'll consider tonight. Firstly, what is heaven? Now, the first thing to note is that heaven now is not the same as heaven in the future. That might be slightly startling to hear, but it's nonetheless true. Heaven now is not the same as heaven in the future. They have a lot in common, but they're not entirely the same. So we know that if we die, as Christians, we go to be with God in heaven, to be where God is, as Scripture puts it now. So to quote just one example, in Luke 23, Jesus turns to the thief hanging on the cross next to him, and he says, this day, I, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's because that man had put his trust in Christ. If you put your trust in Christ, when you die, you go to heaven, you go to be with God, and that's clear. But it's an intermediate state. It's not your final state. Everyone who has put their trust in Christ and has died is in an intermediate state in which, yes, they are with God, yes, they are in heaven, yes, they are in the present heaven, but God's plan isn't finished yet. Christ hasn't returned the final resurrection has not happened. Judgment hasn't taken place. They don't have bodies yet. They're in an intermediate state. Let me illustrate this. Think of your death as the start of a journey, say from London to Hawaii. That would be appropriate, right? The flight will involve a layover en route in somewhere like Vancouver. Now, Vancouver isn't your final destination. When people ask you, where are you going, you say, I'm going to Hawaii. You don't say, I'm going to Vancouver. Or at most, you say, I'm going to Hawaii, but I'm going to be stopping over at Vancouver for a while. The current heaven is like a perfect and somewhat incomplete layover, hopefully somewhat better than Vancouver. There's a lot we could say about the current heaven, but that's not what we're going to look at tonight. Tonight we're going to look at the future heaven, our final eternal destination, which hopefully will be somewhat like Hawaii. So when does this change take place? When does it change from being an intermediate, a current heaven to a future heaven? That final heaven is inaugurated when Christ returns. So in Revelation chapter 20, you can read about how Satan is defeated, 
You can read about how the dead are resurrected, and you can read about how the final judgment takes place. And then in Revelation 21, which Graham read to us earlier, we read about how the eternal heaven, or what the eternal heaven will be like, and we read about who will go there. So that's when the change will take place. Those first four verses that Graham read actually tell us an amazing amount about what the final heaven will be like. And to make it easier, what we'll do is we'll look at it under three headings. Firstly, heaven is a new earth. Secondly, heaven is to be with God. And thirdly, heaven is perfection. So firstly, heaven is a new earth. Nowhere in the Bible is heaven described as a place where you will sit on a fluffy white cloud strumming a harp for all eternity, slowly going stark raving mad, because that is what would happen. It's described as something familiar, yet something completely different. So 500 years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet, reflecting on heaven, speaks about how God promises that his servants won't go hungry, and they won't be thirsty, and they will sing for joy. So in Isaiah 65, verse 17, it all culminates, everything he's talking about in heaven culminates in verse 17 when God says this, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. And then 500 years later, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter has that verse in mind when he reminds us and he says, in keeping with his promise, with that promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And then, moving further forward in tonight's passage, in Revelation 21, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth looking into the future. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. When John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, then he's talking about the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Isaiah so many generations ago. A promise that we will be a resurrected people with new bodies, in a resurrected new universe, on a resurrected new earth, in which there will be no evil. There was no longer any sea. The sea in Revelation represents the source of evil. It's a new earth. It's a fulfillment of what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 8 when he says, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Creation was cursed. It was placed under a bondage when Adam and Eve sinned. And God promises that he will recreate it, he will release it from its bondage, he will free it. And then we will finally be able to fulfill that commission that God gave Adam and Eve, but which they never really fulfilled. Namely, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You're not made just to be a spiritual being. You're made to be a spiritual and a physical being. You're made to live on the earth and to oversee the earth, to fulfill that, fulfill that commission which God gave us. You're made to live in a physical world, enjoying physical things, eating, drinking, working, fellowshipping, and worshipping. 
experiencing many of the things you experience now, but with a purity and a fullness and a richness greater than you can imagine. Where the food you eat will have a taste and a succulence you can't even imagine. Where the work you do will be rewarding and fulfilling in a way that you cannot even imagine. Where the fellowship you enjoy with others will be rich and deep and honest and true in a way you cannot even imagine. Where the presence of God in your worship will be tangible. Where it will be rapturous and uplifting worship without being contrived or constrained by false inhibitions. Where the ache that you have for home, for a sanctuary, will be fully satisfied. That ache which Tolkien tried to convey in The Lord of the Rings, in that ultimate home that he described as the log fire homeliness of a hobbit hole, or the humbling majesty and grandeur of a place called Rivendell. That's what you're made for. You're made for a real, glorious, perfect, physical world. And it's a world we all feel the absence of now. Now, as C.S. Lewis once said, if you find yourself with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. The new earth is where you will be fulfilled and you will be made to feel whole. So firstly, heaven is a new earth. Secondly, Heaven is to be with God. Look at verse 2 of tonight's passage. And John gives us an insight into this new earth here. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. That picture of a city, of a special holy city, is intended to give you a sense of a place where God will be with us. He will live with us. He will dwell with us. The original word is tabernacle. He will tabernacle with us. He will be in a close personal tent with us in a way which is far beyond anything we can possibly experience in this life. And the picture of the city as a bride, beautifully dressed, is intended to give us a sense of the relationship that God will have with us in that city, a committed covenant relationship like a marriage should be. And what he's doing is that he's fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham so long ago when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. So the pictures in that section are of a bride because God will fulfill his covenant promise that he will be his, they will be his people and of a city because God will tabernacle, will live, will dwell with us. Now think of just one of the implications okay, of that, of that reality. Think of the incredible relief when you realize that you will never again have that disturbing, familiar feeling of God being distant. You know, when you pray and all you feel is that you're praying to the ceiling. That feeling that David had when he wrote Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? 
Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? That sense of being alone, of isolation, of abandonment, that will be gone forever because God promises I will be with you. We're not made to be independent, self-sufficient beings. We're made to be in communion with God and we're made to be in communion with each other. We're made to be dependent upon God. We're made to flourish by Him. We're made to be fulfilled through Him and He promises that will happen. Jonathan Edwards was probably the greatest uh, preacher in America that has ever been. And he said this, writing about this topic. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Nothing can satisfy our souls but the enjoyment of God. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than anything. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. They are but scattered beams. God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the ocean. So heaven is a recreation by God, which includes a new earth, where he will be with us in a committed covenant relationship way beyond what we experience now. Heaven is a new earth. Heaven is to be with God. And then lastly, in this question, heaven is perfection. Now, there's a lot that Christians can and do say about suffering and evil and pain in this world because God's word is where you will find truth about that, right? But we're only giving half the truth if we don't talk about seeing our suffering today in the light of our eternal happiness in future. That's a half-truth if you leave that out. So C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, is talking about Paul's verse in Romans 8, where Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Lewis says this about that. He says, any book on suffering which says nothing of heaven is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain, which does not do so, can be called a Christian one. And he's completely right. We can give a lot of comfort and understanding for suffering now, but at the end of the day, there is no ultimate and final resolution in this life to the problem of pain and evil and suffering. Judgment and heaven are the ultimate and final resolution. That's why Paul said our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now look at verse 4 in tonight's passage. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So not only are we given a picture of heaven, of the new earth as a holy city where God will be with us, we're also given a picture that it's a city where there is no suffering, there is no pain, and there is no evil. And the hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, come true, and especially in a book like Isaiah. So in chapter 25, Isaiah talks about how God will swallow up death forever and how the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from our faces. 
He talks in chapter 35 about how only the redeemed will walk there. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And he talks about what God says when he says, God will, when God promises, he will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. No tears, no death, no mourning, no pain, no cancer, no senility, no wheelchairs, no mental or physical or emotional anguish, and no heartache. They're all removed in the new earth, in heaven, because of the presence of God, and they're replaced with the opposite. It's not tears, it's joy. It's not death or mourning, it's life. It's not turmoil or anguish, it's complete and total peace. And these aren't pious platitudes, these are harsh realities that God will bring to bear. It's a commitment from God himself. So look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So to reinforce the commitment that he's making, John highlights the fact that God emphasized that he must write it all down for himself, for people then, and for us now. So that's the answer to the first big question. What is heaven? It's a new earth. It's where God will dwell with us and its perfection. But now on to the second big question, who goes there? Verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. These verses clearly put all of us into one of two groups, right? There's the group at the beginning, which Christ describes as the thirsty and the victorious. And that's obviously an echo of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And also of 1 John 5, where John says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So this first group is given absolute relief from their thirst for righteousness and victory over everything that the world represents. Then there's the second group. The group at the end, which includes, as a list of examples, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. And this group is consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the second death. And that's obviously a description of judgment and of consignment to hell. Now, I'm not going to deal with the usual objections to Jesus' teachings about hell tonight for two reasons. One, that's not the point of these verses, so it would actually be a distraction. And two, if we're honest, then those objections usually arise not because we've discovered that the Bible teaches something else, 
but because we're trying to impose our culture's standard for judgment on what the Bible teaches. So we'll set the objections aside for now and instead focus on two important truths that those verses give us. So firstly, look at the list of people being condemned. It spans those whose actions we would say are horrendous and evil, murderers, for example, all the way to those whose actions we would say are trivial and innocuous, liars, for example. That makes one thing very, very clear. You qualify. We all qualify. Nobody here can claim to be innocent and appeal to be excused from that group. We all deserve to be in that group. That's the first thing. Secondly, notice how the verses push you to think about how impossible the standard is. And then to ask what must be an obvious question. How can I be moved from the group to be condemned at the end to the group to be saved at the beginning? How can I become part of that first group? Now, if you think you can earn your way into that group and into heaven by doing good things, by merit, then you're wrong. You can't. As it says in Ephesians, it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Or as Mark Twain so succinctly put it, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Short, sweet, and to the point. The actual answer is in the verses themselves. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's God himself. We can't be good enough to deserve heaven, but we can turn to Christ who has earned it for us on our behalf. So if you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you put your trust in him, if you turn aside from yourself and your sins, then you can be assured that you will be ushered into a glorious new earth, an eternal hope. Heaven will be a new earth where we will be with God in perfection. And if you want to go there, you turn to Christ because that's the only way. Some of you will have seen the movie of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may also have read the rest of the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the series, Peter and the other main characters return to Narnia a number of times on different adventures. And in the seventh and final book, The Last Battle, Lewis ends the series with them in Narnia. They don't want to go back to our world, as it were. And Lewis depicts what will follow like this. There's a big spoiler alert if you're reading the series. I'm about to destroy the ending for you completely. <laughs> Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope arose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan, softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over, the holidays have begun. The dream has ended, this is the morning. 
And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If January starts to get you down, then remember your life today is just the cover and the title page. Look forward to that incredible day when you will begin chapter one of the great story, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you've mercifully and graciously provided a way for us to be ready for your return. Thank you, Jesus, that you will return victorious as God and judge. Thank you that you will usher in a new heaven and a new earth, a glorious city which will be a new beginning for all of us who are your children. Lord, help us always to bear in mind that this life is a brief moment and what will follow is of far greater importance. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.